So tonight I'm continuing on with the series on the five spiritual faculties, uh, the faculties of faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And these are the great allies that come forth as we practice. They are the qualities that help us to move out of ignorance, to be able to see clearly, to be able to touch into our innate wisdom that gets clouded by delusion, ignorance, that keeps us living uh, life in a, from a painful place. So it's these five spiritual faculties that really mm, help to bring this dawning of wisdom. So faith was our beginning point. It's that uh, movement of the heart, you know, that, that place inside us that knows, has some sense, some intuitive knowing that there is a way out of the predicament of life that is so unsatisfactory, where we feel so continually in a place of dis-ease. And so there's this little bud of faith that begins our journey that helps us to make effort, apply ourselves to the journey of waking up. When this faith becomes strong, it brings about energy, energy that we can utilize to turn our minds towards that which will help us to understand this body-mind experience. This effort or energy helps us to move out of the story of life and to come in direct contact with life itself. So tonight we're going to expand into, I hope, both mindfulness and concentration. because effort, mindfulness, and concentration work so closely together. On the Noble Eightfold Path, this is the limb of meditation. You know, the, the, the three uh, faculties, factors in the mind that really work together, work hand in hand. You know, and sometimes it's almost hard to distinguish where one ends and the other begins because they're so closely linked. Um, but these, these three formulate uh, a lot of our meditative experience. They are supported by virtue, and when they become strong, they bring about wisdom. The commentaries use a simile to illustrate how these three work together. Uh, the simile is there's three young boys going to a park and there's this flowering tree there and they decide that they would like to get some flowers off this tree. But even the tallest boy can't reach up to the flowers. So one boy says, okay, 
I'll bend over and you can stand on my back. So the tallest boy stands on the back of the boy bent over and goes to reach up, but he feels unsteady, unsafe, and there's a fear of falling. So then the other boy says, I'll help you, and he lends his shoulder to steady the boy on the back so that he can reach up safely. So these three are meant to uh, represent effort, mindfulness, and concentration. The one bending over is that of right effort, uh, who is offering some, just the effort of bending over. And then the tall boy standing up, um, when he actually can unify all that's being brought together by the other boy who is providing the shoulder to gain support, he unifies all of that energy and that is concentration. So the three of them working together. But first we'll talk about mindfulness. So mindfulness, it's this presence of mind. It's a, an attentive, attentiveness to this moment and whatever the experience may be. It's an unencumbered awareness that is free of ideas about our experience, the story of our experience. It's free of analysis, judgment, comments. There's nothing added to it and nothing taken away from it. It's a very bare attention. It can also be described as a freshness of mind where we can simply know and experience uh, in a fresh way. There's no idea about it. And so, you know, even if it's just this breath and we're not carrying an idea of what the breath feels like, of what it should be like, you know, that should be really long and steady, but we're just allowing the breath to be and to be known, however it is. There's a a very strong sense of freshness that comes into the mind with this. We also find that mindfulness can have a real coolness to it. And this coolness is actually the saving grace in life. You know, that I know in my own life the times when, you know, I've been caught in some mind state and it's really tormenting me. And then there comes the application of mindfulness. And because mindfulness doesn't have any ideas, concepts, it just knows what the experience is. There's no fight. There's no struggle. And the mind cools. Joseph once referred to mindfulness as being our life jacket. And somewhere that image always stuck with me because I know it's been so true in my own life that to, you know, to at times when I've forgotten mindfulness, how just to bring it in. It's like putting on that life preserver where the mind doesn't get bogged, swamped by experience. It's 
It's interesting to me that many people fear that by becoming mindful, life will become dull, boring, dry. One will feel disconnected. Um, And the truth of mindfulness is, in my experience, it brings me into such an intimacy with life. And it opens up the potential of being intimate with anything. Without mindfulness, I have pretty strong preferences as to where that intimacy will happen. Experiences I like, want to open to, feel comfortable with. But when this intimacy comes through mindfulness, what we so often view as the most mundane experience in life can become vibrantly alive. It doesn't mean we become swept away by that experience, but it means we can open fully to it without fear of being swept away by it. With mindfulness, we learn to open to our deepest pain and our greatest joy. We learn to open to the full array of experience that life brings us. On retreat, we commonly experience this freshness of mind that comes when we can let go of all of our ideas, our agenda, and, you know, experience something so simple as the breath and feel it in just this moment. Touch it, know it, and or we just take one step. And it's like no step we've ever taken before. I remember, you know, once putting on my shoes during a retreat, and they felt so different, so there were so many sensations that were known, I actually looked to make sure that they were my shoes. You know, that, that just in any moment, life speaks to us so freshly. There's a great simplicity to this because we don't need to do anything to know our experience other than to be undistracted. It's really quite simple. But this simplicity for many of us is disarming. And we would rather think our way to liberation because we could figure it out, feel like we have more control. But to let go and just be with our experience, it can be terrifying at times. And to sit in the place of presence, I mean, sometimes we just naturally drop into it. But then to keep sitting there, it's like you just keep watching the impulses in the mind to go forward, to go back, to dodge the experience. That in itself is quite revealing. But this simplicity can turn 
our whole life around, the way we live our lives. A friend of mine calls it the U-turn to liberation. We stop living in the conceptual world where it's just, it, it's so often our concepts are based on misperception. We don't see clearly because of our ideas, views, opinions. But when we just turn and we be with our experience in its simplicity, we can drop to a different level. We can really know things as they are. We really step out of the story of our life and live life directly. I'd like to share a story that comes um, from the book Knee Deep in Grace. And I think this story emphasizes how something so simple can be so profound. (coughs) This was... uh, a story that was told to Jack Engler, who was doing some research related to meditation. When I was doing my research in Calcutta, Deepama brought her neighbor to me, a 65-year-old woman whose name was Madhuri. She had raised her family, and her children were gone. And unlike most Indian families, she was alone with her husband, with no extended family living in the same household. Her husband said to her, You have nothing to do now. This aunt of yours, Deepama, teaches meditation practice. Why don't you talk with her? It'll give you something to do. Madhuri, who was mildly retarded, went to Deepama, and Deepama gave her the basic instructions to place her attention on the rise and fall of the abdomen and with each inhalation and exhalation and to note to herself, rising, falling, rising, falling. Madhuri said, okay, and started to go home down four flights of stairs and across the alley to her apartment. She didn't get halfway down the stairs before she forgot the instructions. So back she went. What was I supposed to do, she asked. Rising, falling, rising, falling, said Deepama. Oh yes, that's right. Four times Madhuri forgot the instructions and had to come back. Deepama was very patient with her. It took Madhuri almost a year to understand the basic instructions, but once she got them, she was like a tiger. Before she began to practice, Madhuri was bent over at a 90-degree angle with arthritis, rheumatism, and intestinal problems. When I met her after her enlightenment experience, she walked with a straight back, no more intestinal problems. She was the simplest, sweetest, gentlest woman. After she told me her enlightenment story, she said, all this time I've wanted to tell someone about this wonderful thing that happened to me, and I've never been able to share this before, this most precious thing in my life. I think in my own life, I too would say, mindfulness has been this most precious thing. There's such a great power to it. When we look at mindfulness, we see that there's actually two ingredients to it. There's an active ingredient of bringing the mind 
to experience, the memory to remember, the memory to come back, the memory to turn our minds towards one of the four foundations that Joseph spoke about last week. He mentioned that there was mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the feeling tone of experience, the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral quality, mindfulness of the mind, and mindfulness of uh, dhammas, um, sometimes translated as mind objects. These are all foundations to which we can turn our minds towards as a basis, uh, a foundation for mindfulness. And then there's also a passive ingredient, which is to see things just as they are. It's a, a reflective awareness. With the active ingredient, the memory to remember, it's challenging. We have so many habits of not paying attention. And so it can be helpful to look and see how we can support this memory to remember, the memory to come back. One way is the more often we do something, the more we will be prone to doing it. So in our lives, to really make it a practice to come back as often as we can. And if we can let this not be restricted to when we have pleasant experience, when we like what's happening, when we're sitting on the cushion, but if we open it up to this possibility of coming back any time in our life to any experience, it really will help to increase the momentum of coming back. I always find it interesting in my own life to pay attention to the moments where the mind screams out, I can't do it right now, I'll do it later. Where it feels like too much to remember to bring in mindfulness. And there is, I can't remember if I said this in these last few talks, but there is a wonderful saying that the, uh, Nike has provided with, for us in their ad where they say, just do it. And so this is something that we can really apply in our practice. When the mind is saying, no, I can't do it, I won't do it later, later, just do it. Now just come back to the simplicity of mindfulness. And I know in my own experience, when I do that, you know, no matter how much that, how strong that scream is, it really simplifies. You know, and it can be coming back to the resistance, the not wanting, but recognizing that. Continuity really helps to support this memory to remember, to come back. Because if every time we sit down, we're beginning again, it's hard work. But if we really work moment by moment, coming back, paying attention, throughout the whole course of the day, it will help. 
And this is, with this, it's really helpful to look and see where it is that we keep putting down mindfulness. And on retreat is a good place to explore this, where these challenges are, where, you know, sometimes the mind's screaming, saying, I can't do it, and sometimes it's just subtly checking out. And so, you know, and that could just be from a habit. It could be the end of a sitting. We go to get up. We finish one thing before we... uh, we're, we don't practice moving from one thing to another, but we you know, might have a habit of waiting until we get to walking to begin again. Uh, and so that you know, in our lives, that might transfer over to we do one thing and you know, we work with mindfulness. Maybe we're cooking a meal, but then when it, before we start to eat it, in between all those steps, we put it down. There can be many points of transition in our life where we have, it of, have a habit of putting down mindfulness. Another place on retreat that we might discover it is when we've been sitting and we've had our eyes closed and then we open our eyes. If we're not used to practicing mindfulness of seeing, it is another place where we will commonly lose it. You know that you know, open the eyes and, oh, there's a room full of people here. And, oh, look what he's doing over there. You know, we just get pulled out through seeing. Um, And, you know, walking around, if we don't practice mindfulness of seeing, we can get pulled into an infinite number of things. And so, you know, just taking the time when you open your eyes, practice seeing, just resting in seeing, and the knowing of this experience. You know, walking around, there is a lot of different shapes, colored form, being known. It's really different to know that than to just be trying to focus in and being pulled into the objects that we're seeing. It can be done in a very relaxed way. Mm-hmm. One place in my own practice that at one point I discovered that there could be a lapse of mindfulness was quite a surprise. It was when I first sat down on my cushion and closed my eyes. You know, I could be going really mindfully, and then it was like, oh, take a break here. You know, and nobody else is going to know. I've got my eyes closed. I'm sitting in the posture. <laughs> so just take a look in your day to see where are these places. It's kind of interesting. Another a support to this memory to come back is interest. We'll bring a big support. Because um, if we have interest in anything, it just, you know, it tweaks the mind. It's like, oh, what's happening here? And, you know, we don't have to force that effort. Because when interest is there, you know, there's a, want, uh, a wholesome desire to know our experience. If we don't have interest, this is when we get caught. You know, there's no interest. What happens? Boredom comes in. Uh, Restlessness comes in. There's agitation uh, simply because we're not paying attention. And and then interest comes in. And as I said, the most mundane things in life become vitally alive. 
it can also be really strengthening to this uh, supporting of this memory to come back to really establish the four postures as the basis of meditation, of mindfulness. It's easy to see how effective this is by just looking what happens when we're sitting. Now, when we have put ourselves in the sitting posture, and then we're sitting, breathing, and space out. So many times for me, it's been an awareness of the body comes back, and then it's like, oh, yes, right, sitting, meditation, come back. And so it, you know, it becomes kind of a, a signal, oh, yes, right, attention, pay attention to one's experience. In walking... Being here, it's a great opportunity to really deepen this as a basis for mindfulness. To walk step by step. When we walk step by step, we put down the burden of life. And this can help us so much in our life at home. Because we walk a lot. You know, even around the house, we walk to get to our car, we walk at work. You know, whatever we do, we probably walk a fair bit in our lives. And many times in life, when we're walking from one place to another, we're charging ahead. We're carrying, we might be carrying something from the past, or we're leaning into where we're going. But if we can make it this practice to walk step by step, It can be a time when that whole burden drops. And for one moment, there's just stepping. It helps us to drop into presence. Standing. You know, we can at any time do standing meditation. It has usefulness if we're dealing a lot with sleepiness just to stand and continue the practice from that posture. It can just be a helpful way to explore this body-mind. And it isn't something that we commonly do as practice, so it becomes a great reminder. And if we establish it here again, there's many times in our life where we find ourselves standing in a queue, in a lineup, waiting, you know, and that can all be a reminder to be present if we have established it in our practice. Laying down meditation. I think this is an important practice and one that, you know, we don't give a lot of emphasis to often on retreat because. Um, it it has its own problems, and one of that one of those problems is that there can be such a tendency to fall asleep. In the course of longer retreats, as more energy momentum comes, it is something we can explore. The importance to me of exploring it is that there are times in our life when we will have no choice but to continue our practice lying down when we're really sick, if we already have established that as a a way of practice, it will be more helpful to us. It won't seem foreign, as if we're giving up by laying down. 
It's also quite likely when we die, we may be in this very posture. And so it again can help to remember at that time to be aware, to be present. On retreats, sometimes too, I've just noticed how somehow to sit in an upright posture, at some point it just feels so, the body feels like almost this unbearable weight. And sometimes in laying down, in the, the mind is still very attentive. That whatever, whatever it's, and it's quite a subtle energy of having to hold the body up, But that goes, and there can be kind of a release into a deeper state of relaxation. But it is one we have to be careful with because it can move into both, you know, sleep, where we're not aware of what's happening, and also just a drop in energy where it's hard to stay with experience. And so if we're practicing in that way, you know, one of the things I would do is if I found that, you know, sleep was just coming too close, then I would just get up. Uh, I would move into a more active practice. And one has to be, you know, have a um, kind of the willingness to do that. Or, you know, as soon as that sleep starts coming, the, the lure of the sleep can be very strong. So to have strong motivation is really helpful if you're exploring this. Um, and if one is in a, uh, a time where one needs to lay down because one is sick and can't continue uh, through more active practice, I have also found it helpful, you know, if sometimes just to move, move my arm up and down as a way of keeping the energy more dynamic so to help alleviate that tendency to fall into the adult state. But all of these postures can be worked with. And um, it really becomes, you know, each of them can signify as soon as we become aware of the posture, can bring us back into mindfulness. So, this active ingredient, looking to how we can support this memory to remember, member to come back. The passive ingredient. That, you know, what's sometimes called a reflective awareness, where there's no comment, no judging, where it's just knowing experience, just as it is. If we have preferences, this is challenging, because we, we, we stay on the level of likes and dislikes. But when we allow this... Um, passive ingredient to be there. This acceptance where we can know whatever our experience is. This is where the coolness of mind comes in, where we stop struggling. Because mindfulness has no preferences. It can know anything. So mindfulness, this presence of mind, this intimacy with our experience, 
the freshness of mind, the coolness of mind that is non-reactive. So, moving on to concentration. Concentration is this unifying force in the mind. It's able to pull together all of the scattered, what we often experience as the scattered energy in the mind, you know, where the mind can be thinking about, analyzing, judging, um, which will often lead to a sense of fragmentation. But with concentration, it helps to unify uh, different facets, faculties in the mind and pull them all together in a way that brings about a feeling of wholeness, oneness, unity, which means that it feels pretty good. You know, if we've been used to being in a very fragmented place and come across concentration, it can be like great relief. Um, I remember doing walking meditation and really struggling with trying to focus the mind on the foot, uh, on the sensations of movement. And it was just such a struggle. But then it's like in one moment all of the factors came together, were unified with concentration, and there was just that connection with the experience. And it's like, oh, you know, it feels so wholesome. Uh, And because it has this unifying energy, it can temporarily protect the mind from the hindrances because the mind isn't so thrown about. There's more stability in the mind. Concentration is actually a universal factor. You know, like these, um, all of these faculties, they can be really ordinary in one application. We use concentration in many different ways in our lives. You know, to read a book, to watch TV, to carry on a conversation with somebody. Uh, These all require some aspect of concentration. Actually, earlier this year, I was in in a position where I was speaking to a, a number of different surgeons, and I really noticed how they have this power of concentration You know, they have to use it in their work. Other people's lives depend upon this concentration being strong. And I just found when I talked to them, there was like this boom, focus. (laughs) So, you know, it can have really useful applications. Uh, Sometimes it can be used in really unwholesome ways. You know, where uh, a burglar, when he's doing his burglary, has to really focus or he's going to leave a trail behind him. So, you know, it's, a, it's common, it's universal, so it means it's, you know, arising all of the time in, in all of the different experiences that we have. Uh, we find that even within various religions, there is many different ways of strengthening concentration. You know, sometimes visualizations are a means of strengthening concentration. Um, can use chanting you know, getting really focused on chanting, and you can experience quite altered states through it. 
can move into trances with it. Concentration can be used to develop strong psychic powers, you know, mental telepathy. Um, there's also this uh, power where one can hear sounds that are really distant, really near. Um, some people, through the power of concentration, can remember their past lives. Deepama, you know, this little Bengali woman who's been a teacher for you know, a number of people at IMS, she, at one point in her life, was really developing some concentration. And she was said to be able to walk through doors. She could cook food with the energy that came through her hands. Uh, she, walking down a dark street at night, could duplicate a companion to walk beside her. So uh, she wouldn't be walking alone. Deepama actually stopped practicing uh, some of these practices because she found that they fed the ego and they actually became a hindrance to liberation. Using concentration in our practice, it needs to be a concentration that is free of greed, hatred, and delusion. It needs to be a wholesome concentration. This needs to be looked at closely in our experience. Because I know for me, there was a time when it would have seemed to me just to keep coming back to the breath would be developing a wholesome concentration, which it can be. But it really depends on the motivation, the attitude. If the motivation is to get something, to get stronger concentration, a, a you know, deeper sense of peace, um, wanting some experience from it, it becomes unwholesome. But if we're able to be with the breath in a relaxed and even manner and just simply rest in the knowing of this experience, it can be quite wholesome. If when the mind has been agitated and there's a a wisdom that knows some calmness could be helpful, this can be wholesome. But if um, we don't like our experience, something's happening in our experience and we just want to get away from it, this could be unwholesome. So it takes some investigation to look and see if the way we're working with concentration is based on greed, hatred, or delusion. A function of concentration has it as being quite a leader in the mind by uniting different associated states, um, bringing them together. And it's actually likened to how water binds the lather of soap. 
It has this binding quality to it, which is what brings the power into concentration. And the power of concentration uh, can be likened to that of how a magnifying glass that is placed between a piece of paper and the rays of a sun magnifies that the rays that are coming from the sun onto the paper, and the paper can actually explode from the power of that, uh, of the, that unifying those rays of the sun. And we find this in our own practice, that uh, concentration will intensify experiences. Um, you know, it, it will allow us to see things more clearly, which can be helpful. Concentration practice was actually quite uh, uh, prominent in the time of the Buddha that uh, when he first started doing some of these practices, he did some jhana or absorption practice where the mind becomes deeply absorbed into one object of meditation and then the mind takes on the quality of that object of meditation. And he became very adept at this. But he also recognized that this was not freedom that there was a temporary peace that came while the mind was absorbed. But this didn't have within it understanding. And so he actually went beyond just using these absorption practices into insight meditation. With insight meditation, we work with concentration by the way of strengthening it, by connecting with our experience moment by moment. We may find within this that our object of meditation is the present moment, but the objects itself may be changing. In absorption concentration, there is just one object that gets focused on whether it be the breath, a light, a mantra. You know, there's many different ways of strengthening concentration in that way. But for insight meditation, we don't want the mind to deeply absorb into just one object. We want the mind to be able to connect with each object and know of its qualities. And so we strengthen the concentration in a very um, sometimes confusing because we can know of the strengthening of concentration quite readily when we just choose one object and can get a sense of how concentration strengthens. But it, it can at times be harder to recognize when the objects are continually changing. And it needs some degree of trust to strengthen concentration in this way, or we will keep moving towards that which just helps the mind to feel more peaceful, more steady, um, but but isn't uh, supporting in the same way the unfolding of wisdom, the, the capacity to actually see into this changing nature of experience 
which helps to liberate the mind. But if we keep staying steady in uh, establishing momentary concentration by connecting with the experience, and if we keep doing this in a very relaxed way, where we're not trying too hard to focus, but staying steady in that effort to return, we will begin to see, to know for ourselves how steadying, stabilizing that becomes. And this type of concentration is something that is very helpful to us in our everyday lives. If on retreat we have been working with just a very focused concentration and we go home, as soon as we go home, we will have, you know, it's like we're faced with so many different experiences, so many things to do, people to talk to. There's no way we can just focus on one object. And if our practice is defined by that type of concentration, we'll feel shattered. And it will feel like, well, what was the point? I can't do this here. But if on retreat we work with simply turning up moment by moment, using the present moment to connect and begin to stabilize the mind with that, this is something that can be done anywhere, anytime. We can continue to work with this in our daily lives. And it is what leads to liberating insight. We really explore concentration on retreat. And you know, sometimes we may have the pull, uh, pull to to look into it in the way of absorption meditation, which can, you know, when that, that power of the absorbed mind is then turned towards the changing nature of, a, of the mind, uh, it can really bring a power to it, uh, can be helpful. Um, but it's, there is things to be aware of with concentration. And one is the attachment to it that can come because it does feel good. It you know, has this unifying force to it. And the, the, I don't think we can spare ourselves from the attachment. I wish we could. I wish you know, I could have listened to somebody who said, you know, don't, don't get attached to concentration. But you know, it's like, I watched, I got attached, I, I will tell you. <laughs> uh, and, but until we really see that that doesn't lead to liberation, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe some of us have more wisdom. I hope so. <laughs> I know another uh, piece for me in my own exploration of concentration was just feeling like I want to know the whole terrain of meditation, experience, the mind. And this was just another aspect to explore the mind. And then, you know, it became like watching the mind do acrobatics. Yeah, you could tell the mind to do this, and it did it. Pretty neat. 
But was I liberated? No. <laughs> and then, you know, it just brought to me how I, I just want to keep it simple. You know, what liberates? How much concentration do we need to be able to see clearly? And what kind of concentration is needed? And I do think it's something we all have to explore for ourselves. But to do it with wisdom, to do it knowing that you know, we can get caught in these psychic powers. In the time of the Buddha, many people were into these psychic powers. He gave them no juice. You know, it, it wasn't what it was about to develop these powers. We can get caught in um, the pleasantness of the experience. And then, you know, there's also seen how concentration, because it's so powerful, to the unprotected mind, it can bring up really negative images. And they're projections of mind, but they come up really strongly and can have a very strong impact. And so there's a power with concentration that needs to be respected. Uh, it, you know, it needs to be treated with care. But I know for myself right now, it's to keep it as simple as possible. However we work with it, it will take training. You know, this diligence to keep coming back. And if that can be done without judgment, without a brutality, but just a gentleness that keeps coming back, this will be supportive. So, I'd like to speak a little, just about a few ways of supporting concentration. First being that of wise attention. Moment by moment mindfulness. Taking care throughout the day. You know, it's to realize that in moments where we put down our mindfulness, we are also breaking concentration. So that bringing a wholehearted attention to just this moment. And strengthening concentration, being able to look and see the balance between concentration and energy. If the concentration is too strong, we'll move into sinking mind, uh, where you know, it can be kind of pleasant, foggy, drifty, but not really knowing what's happening in our experience. If we arouse interest, this will help to balance the concentration. The times when the energy is too strong uh, can be times when there's a, a lot of energy that creates a restlessness in the mind. And we might need to be very diligent to stay steady in the focusing of our attention. We might need to learn how to calm the over-enthusiastic mind. You know, and this can happen through our practice that 
there comes a lot of energy when we get really interested in the practice. It becomes fascinating. But then we start leaning into the experience. And so, you know, it's a support to the strengthening of concentration to learn how to settle back in those moments, how to calm the mind. Or we might get excited, uh, have a lot of energy after a moment of insight. We've seen something in a new way, and we get carried away by the energy of it. You know, it's helpful to know uh, where you can turn the attention in that moment that's going to bring a bit more stability to the mind. You know, there's a real usefulness to finding the way to bring in calmness, calmness. And sometimes that can be through remembering a visceral sense of calmness. You know, if you pay attention to the mind when it's really calm, and then you're sitting and there's some agitation, if you remember that state of calmness, it can incline the mind towards calmness. It's kind of interesting how it works. Another way to support the strengthening of concentration is to learn to uplift the discouraged mind. Because when the mind is discouraged, it's hard to concentrate. It's, it's actually said that happiness is the proximate cause for concentration. So the discouraged mind struggles. It can't, can't find the way to concentrate. So we can learn to find ways to gladden the mind, to brighten the mind. One time in my life when I was really sick and in you know, dark spaces a lot, I made it a practice to uh, do practice of appreciation. You know, to just look and see what in my life I could appreciate what there was gratitude for. And this really helped to gladden the mind, uplift the mind. Sometimes we might use metta practice to gladden the mind. Sometimes just to sit and let the mind be really open, opening to hearing, you know, especially if we're sitting in nature might help to gladden the mind. It's also said to be helpful to learn to cheer the mind when it's withered by pain. Now, if we're sitting with pain all day long, it can become very withering to the mind. And so it's needing to learn where one can turn the attention that is more restful, more easeful, you know, I found, you know, again, when I, I had been sick a lot and in a lot of pain, that sometimes just to be with the breath helped to cheer the mind because it was restful, uncomplicated. You know, so if you're, you know, if you've been with knee pain all day long and it's getting really hard, look where it's most easeful to turn the attention and just let it rest there.
So concentration, this unifying force in the mind that brings a great power. It actually helps the mind to become more malleable, wieldy, uh, more flexible. In strengthening concentration, it helps to bring about an easefulness, peacefulness, um, and it brings the power to the mind that becomes the basis for insight. So, mindfulness, concentration, effort. These are the three faculties that we work with so much in our practice. They become a way that we train the mind. Train the mind so that it can move out of a habituated way of life. Move into a non-habituated experience of life. Not that meditation is the end. It's not that we practice to become good meditators. But we practice because this is will help bring about clear seeing, wisdom, the innate wisdom that we all have. It is what will help us to move out of delusion, ignorance. As we sit on retreat and experience difficulties, challenges, it is all of these five spiritual faculties that become our allies, become the strength on which we can call upon. And they become the same allies that we will use in our lives to face any difficulty, to face whatever challenges present themselves and to lead us towards the release of the heart. So let's just sit for a moment. This talk was given by Maya Shin Kelly at the Forest Refuge on February 20, 2006. It is an offering of